Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the second episode of The Astrologer's Palace, an examination of astrology and the art of memory and why these two arts should be combined for magicians, for astrologers, and for memorizers. Joining me today is Eric Arneson, the host of the Arnemancy podcast and the Arnemancy blog. He and I have had several episodes together on his, and today he is joining me for the second episode of mine. Eric, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. I am super happy to be here. I'm glad that you're doing this project. This sounds like a really fun topic, and, um, and I'm already in agreement with your premise. <laughs> well, excellent. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I want to start off by sort of asking you how you came to the art of memory in the first place. Like, where did you start? I actually came across it through Freemasonry. Um, I, God, you know, it was a long time ago. <laughs> and ironically, I don't remember exactly how I got introduced to it. But I believe um, it was probably uh some masons who talked about it and recommended some francis yates books to me um because freemasonry has some interesting ways of sort of teaching you about memory you know it's it's very symbolic there's a lot of sort of uh location-based stuff that you memorize and um most of the concepts in freemasonry are so abstract that they're only uh really communicated through symbols so uh, so it ju it was just sort of a natural fit, and then through reading about it more, um, I mean it's such a it's such a it's such a broad topic and such an incredibly deep topic. I learned more and more about images and how images were used or looked at in the Renaissance, um, and in particular, you know how images were sort of. Uh, the default mode of thought or looked at as the default mode of thought, which really kind of cracked things wide open for me in terms of how I started using images and memory. Um, but it, yeah, so it happened a while ago and it's been something that I've been kind of like reading and working with and playing with um, ever since. So I would say it's probably been like 15 years maybe. Yeah. And 15 years is a lot, of time to be able to do some stuff with this. I think that uh, Giordano Bruno, who's one of the great masters says, you know, you can learn my very advanced techniques with six to eight weeks to 10 months of practice. Yeah. I forget I which think book it, that is in, but it's in there. It's in uh, Deumbris Idearum. And he actually oh, right, says, yeah. I think he measures it in moons. I think he says uh, four to six moons. Four to six moons. That's yeah. Right. And in there, he's saying not just that it takes that kind of time to memorize, but, but that's provided that you've already done the, the preliminary work of learning the system to begin with. No, I think that's the time that it takes to learn the system. And then he promises that after you learn the system, memorization will be faster. But also, Bruno, it's not it's not really fair to judge your average person's progress with the art of memory by comparing them to Bruno. That's sort of like, <laughs> I, I don't know what the equivalent would be. It'd be like Stephen Hawking giving you advice. I'm like, here's how you learn advanced calculus. It should only take you four to six weeks. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because he was, he was a savant. He was like, uh, you know, he was like 
uh, Bruno was to the art of memory what Lipudamain was to flatulence. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you've touched on the on the two core methodologies that underlie the art of memory, the, the, the art of the image and mm -hmm. the art of place. I know enough about Freemasonry that there are texts that you really only recite or perform when you are standing in specific places in the lodge and when the lodge is open on the correct level of operations, if you will. Yeah. So that, so that essentially you're performing this text standing in this position only when it is time to do this particular kind of operation and at no other time. And that is locking together place and time in a specific way. And yeah. Then, and it gets, it gets even more complex than that because um, a lot of the Masonic degrees, you know, they take place in pretty, in pretty plain ordinary rooms but the the spaces that they describe are the spaces that the, you know, I guess we should probably explain for your listeners. Masonic degrees are are typically kind of like morality plays, I guess. Um, but uh, at least in the in the Blue Lodge Masonry, in the first three degrees, which is sort of the core of Freemasonry, um, the degrees themselves are typically described as taking place in various other locations, like. Uh, typically King Solomon's temple or something like that. But you're obviously not standing in a place that looks like King Solomon's temple. So instead there's a description of what's going on. So it's not just that there's a specific place in the lodge room itself, which might be very ordinary looking. There's also an imaginary place that is described to you that you're sort of told that you're standing in. And so there's the beginning of the art of memory is that you are imagining yourself in a specific place. And as this podcast is going to demonstrate, hearing the same script of that place over and over and over again actually calls that place to mind and builds it in your imagination. Yeah, exactly. And that's how the Freemasons in the 17th century took upper rooms in pubs and taverns and turned them into King Solomon's temple, if only for a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Which for sure. Really quite a nifty magical trick when you think about it. It really is. And, you know, especially since when you go back that far, like they, you know, Masonic lodge rooms now, uh, a lot of lodges have quite a few props. You know, you'll have, you'll have altars and candles and, um, you know, things that hang on the wall and usually like actual physical working tools and, and things that you can sort of point at and be like, and this is what we're talking about now. But back then they didn't have any of that stuff. Like they probably had some gavels and some candles, but they didn't have the rest of the props. Right. And, and it points out really that the first and most important prop is actually not a physical thing at all. It's, it, it's the mental imagination and the way that you choose to furnish the mental space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your imaginal faculty, as a Renaissance image magician might have put it. Your imaginal faculty. I think this mm -hmm. is part of what Picatrix is getting at. It occurs to me that Picatrix was produced by a culture in which image making was banned. Uh, the Muslim world had prohibited the creation of of pictures of human beings. They eventually found ways around that. You know, they said, don't paint 
Islamic saints don't paint Muhammad, praise be upon him. But they did find ways eventually, particularly in Persia and sort of out on the outer edges of the Islamic empire to make images. But Picatrix is, the, at least in, in its initial form, is produced in, uh, in the Middle East somewhere. And it's a secret book about how to teach yourself how to draw in part. Yeah, like, kind it does of, other yes. things, but Right. It's also about how to make incense that's probably going to poison you if you burn it inside. (laughs) Don't do that part. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So so memorizing things in places or by connecting them to specific locations, both in the physical world and in the mental world, matters. Yeah, yeah. And part of that, um, you know, part of that is because uh, we've shown that, like, our memory is uh our our memory has evolved to be place specific like our memory is 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 really efficient when it comes to memorizing locations we can and we we don't really think about it a lot but you know like anybody out there listening to this podcast now can think about you know their apartment building or their house or their neighborhood or like the last time they walked somewhere or even drove somewhere and we we take for granted how easy it is for us to memorize uh, spatial situations. We're really, really good at it. You know, I mean, we, there are jokes all the time about people driving on autopilot and going home when they meant to go somewhere else or something like that. It's because, uh, it's because space is easy for our brain to encode and easy for our brain to, um, to store. So with the art of memory, you're kind of taking advantage of that and then tricking your brain. Well, using your imagination, you are utilizing that, um, that level of ease in your mind to, to artificially create memory. Right. I'm going to ask our listeners at this point to actually do a mental exercise. If you're listening and you're, it's safe for you to do so. Like, if you're on the road, don't do this. Uh, <laughs> but close your eyes and imagine that you're standing in your kitchen in front of your sink. Yeah. And if you're, you can imagine that you're standing in front of your sink and take a moment and point at where the stove is relative to where you're standing with the sink right in front of you. Point at the refrigerator, point at the door that goes outside. I mean, and even more specific, you can point at where you keep the dish soap. You can point at where you keep the dinner plates. You can point at where you keep the wine glasses. Like, you know all of the locations from that sink because your brain is keyed to location and space. You can probably even think of in your refrigerator, you already know like which shelf the milk is on, which shelf the butter is in. Like, you know all of these spaces already. You just never you never think about how easy it is to remember space. We just moved in our house the location of the glasses and the location of the silverware so that it's easier to take them out and, and prep plates and put them back into the dishwasher when they're dirty. And the, the problem is, is now I you're always dehydrated. in the house. <laughs> so now you're dehydrated and you're eating everything with your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Now, the, the world championship of memory folks have demonstrated and scientists of brain science have discovered that we have a structure inside of our brains called the hippocampus. 
and it tracks short-term memory, long-term memory, and where you are in space. And hopefully the, the act of mentally standing in front of your kitchen sink, hey, look, this podcast even includes the kitchen sink. Uh, <laughs> it, you've now demonstrated to your own satisfaction that real places are capable of being called up in your memory and you're capable of walking around in a place that you actually know. Mm -hmm. So let's, so, so part of the art of memory from the Renaissance perspective is in fact, imagining a specific path through space, through a space that you know well, either one that you've imagined into being or one that has, is, is real to begin with, right? Yeah. Uh, and either of those techniques work and the Renaissance magicians and even the, the classicists argued back and forth about whether it was a good idea to use only real places or to use only imaginary places or to mix them up. Mm -hmm. So let's flip to the other side. Memory of image. What is, okay. what is memory of image? Well, memory of image would be... Um would be creation of sort of like symbolic or mnemonic patterns that help you m memorize certain facts or certain words, right? So uh, probably the, the best way for, I, I think that there are a couple of really good demonstrations of that. Uh, one would be the rebus, you know, sort of like the picture puzzle where you're looking at a picture and it uses like visual puns to, to create words, you know, like I, I can't I can't think of a good rebus example right now, but they're you know they're they're common picture puzzles that people see. Um, and then another would be sort of like the use of symbols to um, encode entire concepts. Uh, you know, like we can you can point at symbols that that pretty much everybody knows, such as like a, a McDonald's golden arches or Mickey Mouse's silhouette or. Uh, even even simpler, like the American flag or the cross or something like that, where these are these are images that um, that encode <coughs> excuse me that encode meaning for us. Um, sometimes incredibly complex and really layered pieces of meaning, uh, typically through um, emotion that are that's really important to us. You know, so you know Mickey Mouse's silhouette might just not remind us of Mickey Mouse, but it remind, might remind us of like, you know, the childlike glee we had watching Disney cartoons as a child, or, uh, you know, the golden arches might remind us of the feeling of hunger or being satiated after a meal. Uh, the American flag might fill us with feelings of, um, patriotism or, or something of that nature. So there's like, you know, the, the images themselves contain not just, uh, a reminder of what they indicate, but also like the emotions that go along with them and feeling and like they, they have a, a certain complexity. So I'm, um, and I'm reminded oh. in fact, as you're talking and talking specifically about Mickey Mouse ears, that mm -hmm. when Disney and Lucasfilm merged, there was a fantastic picture that somebody photoshopped of Darth Vader with Mickey Mouse ears. <laughs> and that's... Which <laughs> I mean, it, that's a, it's a comical image, right? Like you think right. about that and it's sort of like, oh, that's funny. And it's an image that you don't forget, uh, which is, you know, part of the secret of images. You make images that you don't forget because they, 
they bring up, you know, ridiculous, they bring up ridiculous associations or things that like your, your mind won't let go of. Um, you know, I'm always reminded of uh, one of the Mars images in the Picatrix is um, a man in armor wielding a spear. And you're kind of like, okay, you know, men in armor, they always wield spears. But this particular one is like standing on the back of an alligator and like riding them that way. And it's always stuck in my head. I've just been like, that's an unhappy alligator, first of all. <laughs> but it's also ridiculous. You know, I mean, there's a level of, of ridiculousness there because you would never see that in real life. But when you, once you imagine it, the image sticks with you. And, and it makes you realize that the art is probably a lot older than the Renaissance or even classical Greece or Rome because the image of someone standing on the back of a crocodile could in fact be Egyptian in origin. That kind yeah. of, of stunning visual image was powerful and, and recognizable to audiences much older than ancient Greek audiences. Oh and yeah, for sure. As, as being powerful and real. Mm-hmm. Makes you wonder how deep the art really goes. I honestly, the more I study it the deeper it goes and the weirder it gets which is one of my favorite things about the art of memory there was a story at one point and i wish i could remember what article it was but a group of pandits who are uh hindu memorizers of either the upanishads or the rig veda uh-huh were engaged in uh brain studies they'd wired them up and they were they had sort of all sorts of electrodes wired into an EEG machine so that their brainwave patterns could be studied during the course of a recitation. And the pandits do this in groups of four. They sit cross-legged across from one another in a, in a quadrant, usually aligned to the four directions, and they repeat the text at one another. They, they start at the same place, they end at the same place, and they do long sections together. And they, they were pulling together a recording of something like two or three hours of brainwave information from these pandits. And apparently one of them got tired and made a mistake partway through. Mm-hmm. Science researchers were like, it's okay, you know, we, we sort of have enough data. We don't have the full 14 hours that we were promised, but we have six or seven, and it should be enough to do the analysis on. And the pandit said, no, we have to start over again, and we have to do this because uh, we cannot end on a mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they went back to the beginning of whatever section they were doing and they did the whole thing over again uh, and went all the way to the end. <laughs> well, good for them. <laughs> but it, it sort of does demonstrate that in an oral culture or even in a culture where stuff is written down, but there's a value to, to being an oral memorizer that having having the kind of rigorous mind that's capable of memorizing long texts like this probably matters. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, you know, we, you know, I, I'm sure you covered this in, in, in episode one, but like the art of memory didn't really start to uh, die out 
um, until there was a technology to replace it. And that technology came in a couple of different ways. Like, first of all, paper, which entered Europe probably, I think, in the 14th or 13th century, um, and mass-produced paper shortly thereafter that. And then uh, the book, the printing press, you know, when there was an ability to um, record information externally, it reduced the need for um, memorization. Uh, and then, you know, that combined with, oh, I could go on about this for a long time, but like, you know, when you combine that with the, with the sort of like um, uh, condemnation of the imagination in general that happened during not only the Protestant Reformation, but then the Catholic Counter-Reformation, you ended up with this whole thing that was sort of like, oh yeah, the imagination is, is just a child's toy. It's not, it's not something that grownups should take seriously. You're not, you know, you, you don't need to use your imagination in real life. Uh, and that kind of eliminated, that just was the, sort of the death stroke for the art of memory. That's, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. One of the things that I think is true of all of those wild illustrations of rabbits attacking human knights and fighting one another with swords and uh, knights fighting snails uh -huh. <laughs> is, is that they're art of memory illustrations. They're saying the easiest way to remember this text is to remember that it's on a page in this particular monastery and it's the book that has the cover with the jewels on it and you're looking for the page in your memory where the the snails are fighting the dragon. Yeah, I think that, that it, it's almost like a an index. It's uh, you know It's what we probably did before we dog-eared. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> You've just dog-eared the Book of Kells. What were you thinking, man? It's like, sorry, I'll just draw a snail in the margin next time. <laughs> uh, let's. So we've we've sort of explored these two methods: the memory of path or the memory of place, and mm -hmm. the memory of image. I've seen you do some crazy things on your blog where you're combining them specifically around learning tarot. And yes. And I want to talk a little bit, or I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about how divination and the art of memory work together for you. Um, that's a really fascinating topic and it's not one that I totally understand myself. Um, I guess at some point, you know, I've been doing tarot for a, for a really, really long time and much longer than I've been studying the art of memory. Um, but tarot is a symbolic language that pretty much exists as images, you know, especially if you use the same deck over and over and over again and you really stick with the imagery in one deck, you're basically using an image alphabet or an image uh, lexicon to... Um, sort of pull meaning out and and do divination. Um, so I've played with it in a number of different ways. Um, you know, one thing I did is uh, take the major arcana, major arcana and transform transform them into not only um, a library of places but a library of images. Um, and I don't use that very often. I just sort of did that as an example of what you could do. Um, but uh, but it's basically it's basically a way of sort of creating your own 
So, so one of the one of the tricks that you do once you start to get good at the art of memory is you use something called a, a person a, uh, action object system, which Bruno is really really big on. Except he's got like person a, action object and then like ten other things going on. But you you know you take um, different images, you assign uh, values to them a lot of times like letters, and then you mix them up. So, for instance you know, uh, in tarot, you might use the fool for letter A and you'd have uh, the person being the fool, the action being um, falling off a cliff and the object being like his bindle that he's got over his shoulder. Uh, and then you would take the magician as, as B and the, um, so the person would be the magician, the action would be like his disco dance thing that he's doing and the object yeah, one hand might up and one hand down. Yeah. 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 And the, the object might be like his wand. So if you're going to have a, if you're going to remember the name Abba, you know, you would, you'd have, uh, the fool for the first letter being the person for the second letter, you'd use, um, the magician's disco stance and then for the third letter, you'd use the bindle. So you'd have the fool doing the magician's thing, uh, but carrying his bindle still. All right. So the fool with his bindle, waving his arms one up, one down, and that yeah. becomes Abba. Abba, yeah. Um, and so, you know, with something like tarot, you, 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 you basically do that for every, le- for every card and come up with a, with a person, an action, and an object for every card. For every image. So- so you could, in fact, use the first nine tarot cards, zero through nine, the first nine mm-hmm. major arcana, and use that to memorize numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you're the sort of person who feels like you need to memorize 10,000 digits of pi, oh. <laughs> you could do that by grouping yeah, them into groups of three or four numbers at a time and creating yeah. a person action object code for that number and then you have a parade of people performing all sorts of ridiculous ap- actions right yeah and so so that's a that's a method of creating um images quickly right so uh so i mean when you're using the art of memory you 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 work out ahead of time your catalog of locations. You know, you have your memory palace that you create ahead of time. And that's usually what takes the four to six months is, is creating your first memory palace and, and having that in your mind so that you can walk through it repeatedly and walk through it predictably and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when you're memorizing stuff, uh, creating images can be a challenge and it takes a lot of practice. So something like a person, act, a PAO, a person action object system, gives the ability to come up with with memory images on the fly that you can use predictably. Right. And so I think it's Bruno that is, is actually recommending that you develop a list of persons that you know, or that mm-hmm. you believe, you know, from imagination, each with their own preferred action, each with their own preferred object. Yeah. I, I think it's pseudo Cicero in ad herenium but it might be Richards of St. Victor, who also adds in the idea of a compartment or a place. So it's uh, Cassiodorus offering sacrifice at an altar uh, in a cave. Ah, uh, and using, yeah. Um, 
Well, I mean, like, I, I don't remember all of Bruno's categories, but he expands it, I think, into five or six things. And hit, you know, and you get the impression that he probably has many, 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 many more. You know, he he never outlines his entire system because he knows it's too complicated for people. But <laughs> it is too complicated for people. I have mm-hmm. I, one of the guests that I've asked to come on this show in the future is Scott Gosnell, who's the translator of Giordano Bruno's work. And yeah. I've yeah. started negotiations with John Michael Greer, a different translator, to, yeah. uh, to talk about this. And he, I'm sure he's got some opinions about this as well. Oh, he, he does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is a tool for wizards. Like the art of memory is a, is a tool for, for magi, magi. It's, it's not just, it's a tool for anybody. You know, I think that it's one of those skills that it's one of those skills that certainly has like an esoteric side to it an occult side to it, but it's actually a tool for improving memory that anybody can use. And in fact, in the past, everybody used it. You know, it was, it was as common as literacy is now. You know, people just learned how to use their memory because that's all you really had. You didn't have post-it notes or a pen. <laughs> um, and frequently so, the book that you were trying to quote only existed in one monastery 400 miles away. You had to walk there, read the book, and then mm-hmm. remember enough of it on the way back. <laughs> yeah, but even more than that, I mean, think of the stuff that you have to remember in ordinary life. You know, you have to remember how seasons work. You have to remember when to plant things and when various plants are used in various or are, are put in the ground or harvested. You have to remember what's poisonous and what's not poisonous. You have to remember uh, names and places. You have to remember, like we we use we we memorize stuff all the time. But not only that, we spend so much time writing stuff down. It's like we don't even know. Uh, I actually, I have a really good example right here sitting on my desk. I was, I was out, um, uh, with a friend of mine and we were talking about, um, music and he recommended a list of musicians that I should listen to. Uh, and he just wrote it down on a napkin. Now that's (laughs) incredibly convenient for me. Right. But a thousand years ago, there wouldn't have been napkins. He wouldn't have had a pen. And if he had something like this for me to look up or listen to later, I would have had to memorize it. Right. There was no other way for me to record that information, right? So the art of memory used to just be a thing that everybody had. I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of an artifact from my own family history as you say this. Um, my mother, I think, still owns my great-great-grandfather's bar book. Oh. You know, so he was an immigrant from Sweden. He spoke a little English when he came for, to the U.S., but he had a, a little book about the size of the smaller Moleskine notebooks, you know. Yeah. Three yeah. or four inches maybe by five. And he wrote all of the jokes and all of the songs and all of the stories that he heard at the local bar because one, it was a way for him to practice his English skills. Two, it was a way of uh, 
practicing being the funny guy. And three, that's what you did. Like this was pre-radio. This was right. 18, 1870, 1880, something like that. And he had, he had a collection of the songs that they used to sing in the bar and in the tavern and, uh, and around the house. Uh-huh. Because that was the only way to store information was to write it down. He couldn't afford to buy sheet music and he wouldn't have known how to read it anyway. But he would learn yeah. the tune in the tavern. Yeah, uh, but in the old days, you know, you wouldn't have had that luxury. If you heard a poem that you really liked, you would have had to have a way to memorize it quickly. Right. So, so and and this is sort of why, you know, like uh, Juan Culliano says that um, pre-Renaissance thought was entirely image-based. People didn't think in words, they thought in images. And that was kind of the normal way to do things. <laughs> it's a it's a totally different you know mind space it's it's hard for us to wrap our heads around because we grow up you know with written language we grow up thinking in words and and it's you know we it's it's hard to uh shift like i certainly can't think in just images no and for a long time when i was a kid there was a point where i can sort of remember that my dreams shifted over from being pictures to being words on a page. Like I would dream hmm. the dream as if I were reading it. Oh, weird. That's it interesting. Took, it took me a while and yeah. a long magical career to flip it back. But, huh. yeah. but that was the way my dream life worked for about 10 years. Huh. Well, that's <laughs> fascinating. Um, yeah, so uh, so I, I think that you know saying that the art of memory is just for, um, just for magicians, just for practitioners of the occult sciences or whatever you want to call them, I think that maybe nowadays it tends to be that way since it's not the art of memory isn't necessarily convenient. You know, it takes work. You have to practice it and you have to work at it, and it's something that you you get to through. Um, through using it daily and not through just like picking it up in an afternoon. Although you can pick up, you know, some of the basic tricks in an afternoon and see how it works in order to make it something that you can utilize regularly. It takes, you know, actual practice. Yeah. I've, I've certainly been working at the, um, at designing the, the astrologer's palace that we're going to be walking through both in, it, during the course of this podcast and, mm -hmm. and I've already been a practitioner and of palace of memory techniques, art of memory techniques. And it's yeah. still hard, you know, it's yeah. definitely, I can't imagine how other people are going to treat this podcast. They may go, oh, oh, this is too hard for me to do. Uh, but I've been at this for not as long as you, maybe 10 years. And, and I've picked up a few tricks along the way, but I also have a lot more practice under my belt. What's it going to be like for somebody who's starting oh. brand new? Do you have any tips for complete beginners? Yeah, I do, actually. I think, um, so you mentioned the, the memory champions earlier. You know, they have like championship memory competitions now. Uh, and my use of the art of memory is nowhere near as sophisticated or, well, I don't know about sophisticated, but it's not as like, 
hard-boiled as theirs for sure. Like I don't memorize a thousand digits of pi. I don't have like entire books memorized or anything of that nature. Um, but uh, some of them have some incredible YouTube introductions to the art of memory. Like there's one that I've watched where the guy literally is like, all right, we're going to walk through this tiny apartment and I'm going to have you memorize every single room. And then we're going to go through and we're going to memorize a grocery list. And then afterwards you're just going to repeat it back to me. And then he does it. He just shows you any, and it's like a, I think it's I think it, it's halfway animated if I remember correctly. So he like animates the little memory images in the various locations, and then afterwards he's like, "Okay, so what's my grocery list?" And you can do it. Well, supposedly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I think that just for getting started, uh, stuff like that that's like super practical is a really really uh, good introduction for sure. Um, and then also you know. Um, uh, learning to think visually or remember things visually also helps. Uh, one of my favorite favorites for that is uh, Giordano Bruno's uh, mnemonic poem for memorizing the order of the Zodiac. Oh. Uh, he has it in a couple of books, but I think I first saw it in, uh, in uh, De Umbris Idearum. Which um, relates to the shadow of the ideas. Yes, yes. Sorry, I I like that Latin name. It it just rolls I, off the I tongue. It too. feels good. I do um, too. But we want readers to be able to find it, either the Scott Gosnell translation or John. Right, right. So on the shadows of ideas. Um, so uh, and this uses a memory structure that Bruno um, outlines called the chain. Um, and there's no locations in it, or there are, but the, the locations aren't as important. It's basically images interacting with each other in a story. Um, a really good example of it in, um, in modern, um, you know, nursery rhyme sort of stuff would be, um, uh, you know, I, I saw an old lady who ate a fly. I don't know why she ate a fly. You know, you know that Perhaps one. she'll die. Perhaps she'll die. And then she eats a spider to catch the fly. And then she eats... I don't know, something to catch the spider. And so through this, you can keep going and going and going. And it's comical, right? Like it makes hilarious images and you can try to memorize it through remembering, you know, this increasingly absurd sequence of things she's swallowing in order to, you know, catch each other as she turduckens herself. <laughs> um, I know it all uh, swallowed a horse. She died, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to you describe this and of course I hadn't thought to put this together until now but when I was a Boy Scout leader every summer I worked at a Boy Scout camp for about seven or eight years and there was a song in the dining hall about once there was a uh, girl with a little red jeep and uh -huh. it's a chain song right it's yeah the the jeep and the and the girl sitting in the jeep and the hat on her head and uh and all of these things sitting on top of the hat and mm -hmm. the hat just gets taller and taller and taller but this comes back to J.R.R. Tolkien's idea about nursery rhymes and and fairy stories being the furniture the the discarded furniture that here's this boy scout song here's this this kid story about the the old lady who swallowed a fly and their memory tools of some kind 
Yeah, or it's a way of learning memory tools, right? Right. Um, but I mean, that's, uh, and, and so in these, in, in these sorts of memory things, all you have are images, but the way that you remember them is the images interact with each other. So the images, you know, one image naturally leads to the next one. And that's, yeah. that's Bruno's chain. He calls that the chain. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So that, um, honestly, it is one of the easiest memory techniques that I've found to use because you don't need to spend any time making a, um, a memory palace. You just have the images and they interact with each other one after the other. Um, and, and I've used this to memorize um, like Masonic lectures and things where the images just sort of flow into each other or one builds into the other one. So you kind of have this ongoing narrative picture show in your head that reminds you of what you're talking about or what you're trying to remember. Yeah. One of the, I was a member of a, of sort of an experimental lodge for a while and Mm -hmm. there was a speech that was associated with each sector of the lodge and people were having an enormously hard time memorizing it until the person who had designed it pointed out that each lodge was meant to be spoken within a specific grid. That, mm-hmm. the, that to her mind, the lodge was divided into a three by three block. And, oh. and so there was a speech for the center. There was a speech for the North, South, East and West, and then the Northeast, Southeast, Southwest, Northwest. All right. So, <laughs> that's fascinating because that's the structure that Bruno calls the table. The table or the field, right? Yeah, or the field. Maybe he calls it the field. I think I call it the table. Yeah, he calls it the field. Um, but, uh, but that points out something that's also super fascinating about uh, these mnemonic techniques is they are constantly being rediscovered and reinvented and recreated over time. Like our brains work this way so well that we can't help but like do it. Right. And people who write pseudo code or who diagram out decision mm-hmm. trees or algorithms for computer programming are essentially doing this same kind of thing. They're creating uh, visual flow charts that, that demonstrate how you're walking through a palace of memory and deciding which actions are triggered and which ones aren't. Yeah, they're just way more boring. but yeah absolutely well scott gosnell argues um in his introduction to uh no not deombris uh the one about the one where uh 30 it's not 30 statues it's 30 whatever the other 30s uh the one where it's like you know, oh, the, 30 seal of, the 30 seals and the seal of seals. 30 seals and the seal of seals. He argues in the introduction that Bruno basically invented um, complex uh, data structures before computers even existed. I don't think he's wrong. Like, I don't think he's wrong right, either. But he's, but he's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that he's right, but I really don't think he's wrong about that. I tried talking about that particular uh, idea with a um, computer scientist friend of mine, and the pushback was pretty uh, phenomenal. <laughs> but <laughs> but again, <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, but that but it's it's the way our brains work, and we keep recreating all of these methods. Um, because we are ignorant of the art of memory as a culture. 
Right. And yet when we rediscover these things and we go, oh, this is so cool. And we teach them to other people. Some really quite fascinating things happen when, uh, when we oh, yeah. other people discover them. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it ends up being, you know, like when you use the same memory structure repeatedly, um, it kind of turns into rote memory in a way where, you know, like you'll go through, or at least for me, uh, I will go through the images in my head, but I almost don't need them anymore. They just end up being like, they're like my comfort blanket in my brain, my comfort brain blanket. <laughs> which might be the title of this episode <laughs> i like that my comfort brain blanket but I, but I think that i agree with you like i've been working on memorizing the the path through the this palace of the zodiac that we're going to be constructing in this podcast and mm-hmm. and it's gotten to the point where it takes me 10 or 15 minutes to run through it in bed before I get up in the morning or before I go to bed. Uh, Uh But when I first started out, it was thinking through all of the things took, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour and a half. And it's now much longer to say it out loud and record it than it is to run through it mentally. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you want to get it. Yeah. And in fact, um, so, you know, I've done, uh, I've done art of memory work with the Zodiac with various astrological sets. And I think you've seen those articles too. I have. They've written. I really grew um, article on the triplicity rulers and, uh, and the meanings of the triplicities in each house. Oh, thanks. That that's was, a, that's a that fantastic and I'm going to link to it in the show notes. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, I liked that one. I didn't. Uh, I didn't give away all of the. Um, all of the. Uh, I mean, I have. I haven't memorized all the triplicities yet. Did I lose you? No. Did you, you lose me? Uh, nope. We've got. Okay. Uh, okay. We've all got. Right. There we go. Okay. Um, but, uh, but what I did with that particular method is, um, there is a mnemonic device that everybody already knows that is used to memorize the triplicities and that is the 12 days of Christmas, you know? (laughs) So everybody knows, you know, the, the song, uh, you know, the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge and a pear tree. Everybody knows that song. Well, maybe not everybody, but if you do know that song, suddenly you have a set of images that can be your base image for all of the triplicities and yeah so you already have the initial chain and then off of that chain you build sort of sub chains to encode the rest of the information um yeah but, but then also i've used so i also created a mnemonic poem sort of copying bruno uh to memorize the meanings of the houses but remember that piece as well and i'll link to that in the show notes as well so, so, but there's something even better that can happen once you start to get familiar with the astrological system is that, you know, sure, you can use Bruno's system of uh, Bruno's mnemonic poem to memorize the order of the, um, of the zodiac signs. But once you have those zodiac signs in your mind, 
the signs of the zodiac themselves can become a memory palace. It's a fixed order. They are very distinctive. They all have meaning associated with them and distinct things associated with them. And I am certain that Bruno did this. And the reason I'm certain of it is because of this book, The Expulsion of the Triumphant Beast, which I showed you earlier, which is, uh, it's basically, you know, Bruno ranting. He has these dialogues where he rants about uh, stuff is and how... Anyhow, that doesn't matter. But what really does matter is if you read this, you realize that he has these he has these whole sections where his arguments are laid out, uh, and he mentions the zodiac signs as he's going through them, and they're always in order. And when I was reading, I was like, "Oh crap! This was a lecture that he wrote down later." But he memorized his lecture using a memory palace based on the zodiac. So first, he chained them together. He memorized the signs of the zodiac. Then he wrote and then he lecture, and he stored the individual segments of the lecture in each of the halls of the Zodiac. Exactly, exactly. So it just goes to show, I mean, <laughs> it's basically the sort of thing where like once the images become so fixed in your mind that, that you can walk through them, you can, turn, you can turn a chain of images into a new memory palace. Right. And that means that the whole idea behind memorizing weird lists is at least in part to give yourself spaces in which new things can be memorized. The more exactly. you memorize, the more that you're capable of holding new information in your memory. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, it's almost sort of... Um, Images and locations at some point become interchangeable. <laughs> at least some of our listeners are, are magical practitioners or at least fancy themselves magical pr practitioners. Have you had any weird or, or even outright magical experiences as a result of working with Palace of Memory? Yes, absolutely. Um, it is my firm belief, first of all, that like ritual is much more effective when it comes from the memory and that you're not, when you're not reading it, uh, which means that I try to memorize ritual. <laughs> not all the time. I have like people that I do uh, ritual with regularly who are probably listening to this and being like, you don't have that stuff memorized. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, when you memorize ritual, uh, and you use the and you use the art of memory to memorize it. You tend to use sort of the symbol sets that you're working with in the ritual, right? Like you aren't going to use Disney characters to memorize, uh, you know, barbarous names out of the Greek magical papyri. Um, I mean, I guess you could, but it would be bad. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> but um, but you you interact with the images, and the images become something more. Um, and you know, in in um, in magic, uh, a lot of the basic techniques that you use all sort of are geared around visualization. We call it visualization because, uh, and I think we call it visualization because words like imagination tend to be kind of uh, they they sound childlike to us. You yeah. you can't say to somebody, imagine a flaming pentagram in front of you, because that's like, so what. 
Instead, you're like, visualize a flaming pentagram. But no, it's your imagination. It's in your imagination. And your imagination is, is, is just as real as everything else. So you can totally imagine things. It's great. Um, but, uh, but utilizing the imagination and creating images that way, it's, 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 a, it's a core part of magic. We, we brush up against it when we learn and we sort of like, you know, it, it, it's very rare that we go super deeply into it. But I think that learning how to trust your imagination is sort of like core to so many uh, magical practices such as scrying or astral projection or you know invocation of deities or god forms or pretty much every ritual uses imagination and uh and we always try to draw lines between like you know what what am i imagining that's fake and what am i imagining that's real and it's like how is it fake you know if if, if it's an image in your mind (laughs) something is making that image (laughs) um right which maybe isn't the healthiest thing for some practitioners to hear but it's true like your imagination is the most powerful tool you have uh so using the art of memory has it, it 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 like supercharges your visualization skills and it turns images into i mean it's it's i i almost feel like it it makes me sound like a madman when i talk about it but it turns images into something more potent than than you ever would have thought it to the point where like you read about image magic and you know john michael greer mentions this in the beginning of his uh translation of uh where he talks about uh, impressing images on the memory and how he was, he thought Bruno would probably would have been aware of sort of like, you know, the techniques of image magic and electional astrology and all that kind of stuff. But it turns out the more you work with this, the more you realize that, that the image from image magic isn't something that's drawn on a piece of paper. No, it's, it's totally in your noggin. It, or in your soul. I think in your soul is probably it's, better language here. Yeah, um, it's in your soul. And it's totally, and you can see it. I mean, that's why so much of that old art is so shitty. Like you look at the Greek magical papyri and you look at some of the, the images that they're drawing out. And they're like, this is like the, sh- I was drawing stuff better than this in first grade. Like, how is this a magical image? And then, you know, once you start working with it, you're like, oh, that's just like, that's not the image. That's just what they wrote down. <laughs> and it's, if you go and you do a Google search for um, medieval illumination or medieval illustrations of elephants, oh, yeah. this is a great way to see this because they have no idea what an elephant looks like. No, right? Medieval don't. monks in, in Central Europe and in France and in England have no idea at all what an elephant looks like. and. Uh, they're worse than the blind men, you know, groping around the elephant. They're, they have yeah. no idea what it is that they're drawing. You know, a, a giant beast that has four legs like a horse but can carry a castle on its back. What? <laughs> and yet, yeah. And yet when they draw one, they're using ultramarine and they're using carmine red and they're using 
gold leaf, they're gum Arabic, they're using some of the most precious materials to do the worst possible drawing you could possibly imagine of an elephant. And yet, you know, here we are, we look at it in a museum or on Google and we go, well, that's clearly an elephant, even though it's really badly drawn. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. but you think about the monk who's drawing it and they're having, they're having an astounding experience in the imagination of a monster that's, you know, three times the height of a man that can carry a castle on its back, that is super strong and can crush knights with its bare feet. Yeah, and, and, and how do you feet, put that on is, paper? Is it bare feet with huge claws or is it... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, that's a great example of it. Uh, But it it happens, yeah, like all throughout magical texts as well. You'll see really bad drawings or or things that are just like obviously weird scribbles. And you're sort of like, is that really like that's all the effort they put into it? It's it's not. It's not. Um, So I, I guess that's probably like the biggest revelation that's come through using the art of memory uh, as part of an occult practice is that um, you can create talismanic images that do not need to be written down or attached to a physical object. That's really a powerful thing because if you're bringing up the object in your own head, it's not mm-hmm. a thing. It's not a physical thing that can be taken away from you. It is imprinted on your soul. You have made it real enough that it has the magical capacity to change you and to change the world around you. And yes. And it's important to remember that, <laughs> that in the modern world, we have an upside down view of how reality works, right? So to us, the imaginal realm, we're, or at least the way that we're sort of taught and the way that our, our society pretends that this works is that the imaginal realm uh, emerges from actions in the physical world. But to a medieval magician or image worker, it was the other way around. Images come first. Reality is the, is the, is the muck, right? Reality is the stuff that falls out of the imagination. Yes. Yeah, like Plato. You know, you have the form and the image, and then you have the real thing. And the real thing is the least perfect part of it. So those imaginary elephants. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm just thinking of the imaginary elephants now. (laughs) (laughs) Don't think about imaginary elephants. No! (laughs) With bare feet. With bare feet. Uh, Yeah. No, no, like it's we haven't really talked about neoplatonism and i'm not sure that we have time but that may be because that may be another episode all on its own but i think neoplatonism is the core of image magic and why the art of memory is so powerful for magicians right and and it's because as we mentioned de umbris idearum on the shadow of the ideas that the image Mm -hmm. is the shadow of a real thing that the image that you carry around in your head or in your imagination is itself a shadow of something that's more real than that 
And yes. When, so when you take the imaginal idea in your head and you take out pen and ink or your paints and you transfer it onto physical substance, you're taking you're taking a, perfect a shadow, image. you're taking a shadow mm-hmm. of a perfect thing, a perfect entity, a, a form in, in platonic language, and you mm-hmm. are bringing it into reality. You are manifesting it, and some people who listen to this will understand this, you are manifesting it down the tree of life from Kether to Malkuth. And it's absolutely through all of the different paths and all of the different spheres without you doing a thing except Mm -hmm. drawing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So part of the, part of the secret of the imagination is that, you know, we are created in the image of the divine, right? So we exist, we exist as a reflection of the divine and part You know, the, the ultimate divine power is the power of creation. Now, if we exist in the mind of God, which the Corpus Hermeticum seems to indicate that we do, and we are an image of God itself, that means that we can create in our minds. So our imagination is our power of creation. And this is... This is what Tolkien is saying with the idea of subcreation and in the essay on fairy stories. And mm-hmm. this is what Jung is getting at sort of indirectly with the idea of active imagination that, that yeah. the things that we create in our brains or in our minds to use, to use a little, or our souls, we could call it our souls, souls uh, <laughs> are real. And yes, the things that we create there as as images can be brought into the the world of physical matter but first they mm-hmm. have to be real enough in our own heads yes hearts yes souls yeah for sure well this has been very informative eric <laughs> and i hope that our I'm listeners super... have gotten a lot out of this why don't you tell people where they can find you if they want further counsel and guidance from you. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case your life isn't weird enough yet. Uh, I am uh, on the internet all over the place as Arnamancy, A-R-N-E-M-A-N-C-Y. So I've got a website, arnamancy.com. I've got the Arnamancy podcast. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, it, I would love to hear from you guys. Tweet at me or whatever you do out there. Fantastic. <laughs> this has been awesome. It has been awesome. I'm, Thank you so much. For I'm just super. Fun. Yeah. You know, I'm just super glad that you have um, managed to find a continued existence for all of those imaginary elephants. <laughs> They're very happy too. Now they get to be they really are. real. And Google is going to be wondering, why are so many people Googling about medieval elephants? <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do. We should ask people to post a link to your favorite imaginary medieval elephant. And we'll end the show. Or, you know what? Draw your own. Or draw your own. I think that's yeah. Draw your own or find your favorite imaginary medieval elephant. And... Uh, <laughs> 
and join us next time when we will be walking in more detail through the Hall of Aries. Uh, Ooh. So that will be our first detailed look at one of the one of the sec the twelve sectors of the of the palace of the zodiac, which is where we'll. It's possibly up. the worst smelling hall. <laughs> yeah, I haven't decided how much uh, how much scent to include into the into the framework, but that's a good point. That the smell. Yeah, I think it's hard for people to imagine smells. So yeah, but <laughs> particularly bad ones. We're not good at doing right. that. Yeah. All right. Uh, join us next time on the Astrologers Podcast and have a great day. Bye.